magic lies within the trails we ride. You're listening to the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick is a horseman, trainer, international clinician, and author whose mission is to help people achieve a deeper connection with their horses through his transformational training program. Just because he knows that you G'day everybody, welcome back to the Journey On Podcast. I'm your host Warwick Schiller and I'm so excited for this, uh, if you guys listen to this podcast, you know, this is the Journey On Podcast and it's all about the journey and the guest I have this week, her name's Helen Spencer and she's a veterinarian from the UK, but I met her in Mongolia when my son Tyler and I went on that uh, cold camel expedition in the Gobi Desert a couple of years ago <clears throat> and when we... Um, when we went from the capital of, of Mongolia, which is a, a city called Ulaanbaatar, we drove out into the desert in, these, in this van for about 12 hours to get out to, to the camels. And on the way out there, Tyler and I, you know, we've been a few places, so we started telling travel stories. And after, after some of the people started telling their travel stories, we shut up because we thought we've been some places, but... There were some people on that trip who've been a lot of places, but none more so than Helen. She's been to, at the time, she'd been to 78 countries, as you'll hear here in the interview. She's been to 80-something now, and what an adventurous spirit. And, uh, yeah, I, I just can't say enough about Helen and, and what she's done and where she's been and the experiences she's had. And I was just mesmerized when we recorded this podcast here in some of the some of the stories she had to tell. So uh, without any further ado, I'm going to let you uh, be just as amazed as I was listening to the journeys of Helen Spencer. Helen Spencer, welcome to the Journey on Podcast. Thanks a lot, Warwick. It's good to see you again. Yeah, you too. It's been almost two years since we met in uh, Mongolia. What a fun time that was. My gosh, that was a trip of a lifetime. That really was epic. Yeah, it was. It was well, yeah, it was it was epic. It was epic for me, but that's the thing. The reason I got you on here is because you've had a lot of epic trips in your lifetime. How many countries have you been to? I I think it's in the eighties now. Somewhere Not around now, there. because it was I think it was seventy eight or seventy nine <laughs> when we were we were in Mongolia. It was funny. You know, when we got to Mongolia, we um, were there in the capital, Ulaanbaatar, for a couple of days, and then we pile in these vans and drive 12 hours out in the desert to go to where the camels were. And on the way out, Tyler and I started, like, telling some stories about our travels because we'd been some places. <laughs> and then we realized, oh, shit, we're in a van full of real adventurers, and we need to shut up because you guys have got way more stories than we have. And and you were um, you were one of those. So you're a veterinarian. I am, yes, of 22 years now. 22 years, wow. Yeah. And so some, something I want to talk to you about here on the podcast, and I, I'm sure people that are listening will be fascinated by this, is, you know, every veterinarian I know, and being in the horse game, you get to know a few veterinarians, they tend to work themselves to death, as in it's, it's almost like they, it's almost, well, it's the same as in the horse training industry you know it's it's almost like oh yeah i, I don't even take a day off i work seven days a week or i work you know blah, 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 blah. i work till 10 o'clock at night all this all this go 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 stuff that i think 
I know sometimes it can be, sometimes it's because you're passionate about what you do, but sometimes I think people get busy to avoid facing life in general. I don't know. I don't know what it is. So you have managed to be a veterinarian for 22 years, travel to 80 something countries and do both. How do you, how do you go about doing that? Well, I think you're exactly right that vets work themselves into the ground and that is a huge problem at the moment. I mean, I don't know what it's like where you live, but in the UK, vets are leaving in their droves, which is really sad, leaving the profession because they're burnt out. So I know that the way I deal with stress, and there's a huge amount of stress for vets, for nurses, for anyone in our profession, um, is to take myself away from it every now and again. And I've made very certain to do that in my 22 years uh, as a vet. I've gone to some really remote places where there's no communication either. And that makes sure that people can't contact you from work because the norm is to work anywhere from 40 to 60 hours. And as you said, be proud of it. And actually, I want to live and not live to work. I've always had a fascination of other cultures and other places, and I've incorporated working as a vet abroad as well. But I've very much made sure that for my own mental health, I have escaped from my job and experienced other cultures and got right away from work and my phone and being able to be contacted. And that, I think, has helped me through enormously. I can't say it's easy. I mean, financially, I don't live a very extravagant life, but I do put an awful lot of my finances into travels and adventures because that's my passion. So finance has to come into it to travel to remote places, but also preparation. You know, I have worked a full day on a Friday with my backpack in the office and got straight to the airport by the skin of my teeth, made a flight Friday night and, you know, come back two weeks later, very late Sunday night or even one day, it was like five o'clock Monday morning and straight back to work again. So I've maximized every second of my leave as well, which is pretty exhausting. And to prepare to leave my job for a week, two weeks, whatever it might be, can sometimes take a few months. And to deal with the shite that builds up when I've been away for a few weeks because I am the practice owner uh, takes several months to undo but uh, and that used to really really stress me out as well but I had to learn to, to live with that if I wanted to travel and that's just part of traveling is all the preparation and also the getting things back on track when I'm when I'm back at work again so I can't say it's easy but I've made it my um, a, a huge importance in my life. That's that's what I get my kicks doing, and that's how I deal with the stresses of being a vet. You know, I'm a big fan of uh, Brene Brown. You ever heard of Brene Brown? No, I'm afraid not. She, um, she's a um, let's call it. She's in the mental health field. Put it that way. Okay. Here in the US, uh, but she in one of her books she talks about how she. Uh, 
went to a an office building in New York. It was a big law firm, and she rode up and down the elevator all day listening to elevator conversations. And these guys were like, you know, two guys are getting the elevator like, uh, I worked till 2 o'clock this morning. How about you? And I'm proud of it, probably. And the, other one, and the other one, and the other one says, I didn't go home. And they're like, yeah, <laughs> you know, like that, that sort of, that sort of thing. And, and, you know, you mentioned before that people are leaving the, the like veterinary, um, profession in droves, but I think, isn't there, I don't know about in the UK, but I know in a lot of countries, there's a high rate of suicide with vets too. Yeah. Unfortunately, the highest rate of suicide is vets and farmers. And that is to do with the pressure of the job. I mean, until recently, very recently, to work part-time as a vet was very much kind of looked down on, unless you had a reason, like children. <laughs> um, now things are very much changing. I went down from five or six days a week for many, many years. Four years ago, I, I, I now work four days a week, which is perfect for me. But I, the guilt... I felt or I, I perceived is huge. And uh, now this is where, this is how we're going to save our profession, I think, is flexible working um, and people working less hours and therefore not burning out. Uh, it's the only way to go, really. And, and why not? Um, but, but I think things are changing. Yeah, you said something very interesting then, the pressure, and then you said, or the perceived pressure yeah and it's 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 pressure we put on ourselves you know when you're in that sort of situation it's only pressure you put on yourself and well it's that too but it's also the perceived pressure from other people or it might be pressure from other people but they're not really pressuring you it's just it is just your um it's your perception of what they're thinking of you you know i've read have you you know who jay shetty is no, I'm afraid not. I'm not very well uh, read. Jay Shetty, he's British. He now lives in LA. He was a he was a Buddhist monk okay. for a few years, and he, so he's sort of a you know an influencer dude. But at, he's got a book called um, "Think Like a Monk," and the very first start of the book it says, "You are not who you think you are. You are not who I think you are. You are who you think I think you are." Yeah, absolutely. And it was like, you know, I don't know if you are, you know, I don't know if you are who you think I think you are, but that's kind of who we think we are is, you know, like what the perception, what our perception of what the other person has of, has of you. And yeah, and, and I think getting to where you get, I don't know, comfortable with yourself to where you don't really give a shit what other people think of you and you make decisions for you and not, you know, based on whether someone's going to like you or not or whatever. I think that's, it's a very, um, it's a very freeing sensation when you can get to that point in your life. Absolutely. I think that comes with perhaps age experience. I don't think things like social media help, particularly uh, younger generation you know they're judged on their instagram feed and some people live their lives just for instagram and not perhaps as themselves but yeah i do feel for the teenagers in 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 the world at the moment living with social media at such a young age but i think i've just gradually become a bit more comfortable in my own skin and 
less caring what other people think. But I'm still guilty of that for sure. Yeah, I think we all are. But I th- yeah, and I think I think when you become aware of, you know, I, I think the thing with getting over anything like that is first becoming aware of it. Because I think for a long time we're not we're not even aware that that's how we view the world or that's how we think or that's how we feel and you just have this general level of unease or whatever within you that you don't even know why it's there you know so I think yeah I think a lot of times identifying things like that are um, pretty important but anyway we're getting kind of morbid here I want to hear about your adventures so you've been a vet for how so have you always had a bit of an adventurous spirit yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I grew up on a farm, uh, on a farm with, a with a hell of a lot of freedom. I'm the youngest of four, um, so my mum didn't have her eye on me all the time, and I was able just to have, you know, mini adventures on my own with my dog for years. That's what I did. Um, you know, just you know, a pair of shorts, and that was usually it. Maybe some wellies on wet days, but off I'd go with my dog in the morning, and. Uh, I'd come back for tea in the in the evening. Um, I also grew up with quite an adventurous family. So my paternal grandmother, my dad's mum, she was a, a very wealthy lady, born in 1901, and she travelled after the First World War uh, quite extravagantly, you know, on the big ships. She travelled all around the world uh, in the sort of 1920s, uh, steamboats, paddle ships. She went all over the world to the Caribbean or Fiji or Australia and she took amazing photos and she also bought trinkets and, and, and bits and pieces and postcards. And from a very young age, going to her house, she had a walk-in cupboard that she would let me go into and it was full of all the just stuff she bought back from traveling. Say it would be postcards, it would be little trinkets made of of coral or ivory, it would be coins, notes, and then all her photographs. And I would spend hours and hours and hours in that cupboard learning about the world and where these amazing places were and wondering, you know, maybe one day I would get to experience that as well. So I think that was probably what sparked my interest, um, particularly coins uh, and everything that goes along with what's on coins and banknotes and things like that. I was fascinated with all of that. But but growing up on a farm, I didn't ever get to travel myself till I left school. I had horses. I live on a farm. We've got dogs. We've got rivers. We've got everything a kid could want. So we never left the country. We just had a lot of fun on the farm locally. So I didn't really get to travel until I left school. But I always dreamt of it, and I've grown up with all the stories. There's huge amounts of books and and paintings and things around my house of Everest expeditions, the Victorian explorers discovering the River Nile, where the source was. All of that kind of thing was was in my bones from from growing up around my dad's family in particular. Wow, that's a, a an early. Um Early influence, huh? Yeah, for sure. So when you when you got out of school, where did, where was the first country you went to? Well, actually, the day after I left school, um, I put on a backpack and with a couple of friends, we went interrailing. 
back then you could get a pretty cheap train ticket um, and you could go anywhere in Europe for an entire month, anywhere. So off we went literally the day after I left school. I'd never traveled. Um, Off we went through France, um, Germany, Berlin. The wall had just come down. That was that was quite a, something to see. It come down a couple of years before, but it was pretty edgy and rough, East Berlin. Um, and we went all the way to Hungary, Czechoslovakia, all sorts of countries, and then down through Italy, Greece, Spain. It was really eye-opening. I had no money. Um, I'd washed cars to, to earn some money. I had £10 a day, and that had to be spent on everything from food to accommodation to tickets to get into um, museums and places that didn't, didn't go very far. It's probably about $10 actually. Um, so most of the time I slept in stations. Um, I slept rough on the street quite a lot and experienced what that was like. I definitely don't want to do that again. And I slept in trains, sometimes up high on the luggage rack or just picked trains that went, uh, long distances overnight. So I could sort of sleep in my seat. It was hard work, but it meant that I saw very rapidly an awful lot of Europe. And the last week of it, I actually split up with the two girls I was with. Um, They wanted to go sunbathing and I wasn't done with traveling at all. So off I went on my own, freaking my mother out because she'd never been abroad really before. But um, there I was on my own uh, traveling around Europe. And I made it by the skin of my teeth. I just made it back to Dover before my ticket ran out at midnight. I I got back at half past 11 (laughs) and uh, phoned my mum to come and get me because uh, my ticket wasn't valid after that. But yeah, that was my first taste of travel and and I was hooked. And how long was that? That was a month. Oh, wow. Um, And so what what was the sleeping rough like? The sleeping outside, how was that? Tough. You know, people treat you like crap. Um, it really, it really was an eye opener. It's not something I wish to do again, but you know, I'm glad I've done it right now. I actually volunteer for a charity called street bet in London. And we look after the homeless people's dogs and cats sometimes, but mainly dogs in London. And, you know, I I can't say I know what it's like to sleep rough long term. I have only done it for a few weeks, but it was tough. And I know that if I had to do it long term, I'd want a dog for comfort, for warmth, for protection. And also an, an awful lot of the the people that I've got to know through Street Bet have issues, you know, who, who have issues with, with drugs or substance abuse and a dog or a cat. There are a few cats, but it's a reason to keep clean. It's a reason to look after yourself as well. Um, so it was just a small taster into that, and uh, and I've been volunteering for Street Vet for three years now, um, and it, it's it's a real highlight actually of living in London for me and using my skills as a vet for for good. We I work on a particular patch in North London, so I've got to know um, the folk around there. Most of them are fairly regular; their animals are really well looked after. Um, and we sit and we chat. Sometimes they need a bit of veterinary attention. It's mainly flea and worm treatment. And, you know, we also have, uh, 
an account where, where kind folk can donate uh, jackets for dogs, blankets, toys, food. So I take a big backpack full of basic veterinary care, but also that kind of thing around. Um, and, you know, we sit and chat and find out what they need. They know we'll be there every two weeks. So uh, uh, we take what they'll need. But, so you know, often there's new people on the street, just having a chat with them, making sure they're aware of who we are and that we'll be there every two weeks and we have an emergency number and then seeing the regulars. It's amazing what you can do on the street. If you think about it, you know, I can do a full consult with a dog, take them somewhere quiet. I can get a blood sample, urine sample, skin scrape. There's not an awful lot we can't do on the street that we, that we can do in a normal consult room. Just these people don't have an address, so they don't qualify for, you know, your, your, your standard veterinary treatment, and there's, there's no way they could pay for it either. Wow, that's amazing. Um, I was watching a doc- – oh, I watched a documentary recently by a, um, Canadian, a, a Canadian doctor named Gabor Maté. Gabor Maté is one of the world's leading experts, I guess you could say, on um, addiction. You know, basically he says that all addiction comes from some sort of trauma, mm-hmm. you know, usually childhood trauma, and – a lot of times that that ends up with um, you end up with some sort of chemical imbalance, you know, where you have that, that leads you to to the addictive thing. But so it was a it was a it was a documentary called "The Wisdom of Trauma," I think it was called. And there was a so there was a section in there on homeless people, and there was this lady that that looks after a lot of homeless people in a certain area. I forget where it was, but she was saying, you know, the the biggest thing for homeless people they feel not seen yeah absolutely it's so easy to walk past isn't it yeah like they're invisible or Mm -hmm. they're less than yeah and and she said the best thing you can do is just look them in the eye and say hey how's it going yeah chat and and it's working with homeless people i i was in the same boat i was nervous to talk them why would they want to talk to me what do I say when I started volunteering I was a little nervous but yeah just have a chat sit down have a chat ask them how they're doing today it's kind of easier I have to say when they have an animal because we talk about the animal mainly um and I do find that easier Uh, but if everyone would just take the time to have a chat buy him a coffee. It's pretty lonely on the street and it's, it's bloody hard. Um, so yeah. And they, they, they all have their own stories. Every single one, some are career homeless, if you like, they, they, they belong on the streets. They've tried living in accommodation, but just don't like it. Can't hack it. Unfortunately in England, I'm sorry. It's very difficult. There's not many shelters that will take animals as well as um, their owners. We're trying to change that mm. as street vet. That's a big drive that we're doing uh, to encourage uh, homeless shelters to take animals. But for a lot of people, it's a choice. Either um, go into some sort of sheltered accommodation hostel or have an animal and live on the street. And, and most of the guys I know would prefer to keep their animal. 
Wow. Was there, when on your first little jaunt around on your train ticket when you were sleeping rough, was there a lot of homeless people then? I mean, because these days, I mean, there's, you know, I don't know about in England, but here in the, around, well, at least around here where we live in, in California, since the start of the pandemic, you know, like there's homeless camps everywhere. Yeah, no, it's like, way it's worse now. Sad. Way, way worse. Um, Definitely. I mean, I, I notice people more as well, just because I've worked with them. But but it, yeah, it's even mm-hmm. since the pandemic, it's got way worse in London, unfortunately, for all sorts of reasons. But it, it, it is really sad and it's a huge problem in London. Yeah, it's it's pretty bad around here. Um, okay, so that was your first little jaunt around the countryside. So you got mm-hmm. back from then. That was, I take that was after high school? Yeah. Well, yeah, when I was 18. Yeah. yeah, when I was 18. Yeah. And so then how did the whole vet thing come about? Did you always want to be a vet? Yeah. I mean, I, I I can't imagine wanting to do anything else. I grew up around all sorts of animals. I live on a farm, but also a zoo. And I didn't spend a lot of time with humans growing up. Um, so I've never, ever, ever wanted to do anything else. Having said that, I never thought I could be a vet because there was this stigma that you had to be so clever. And, you know, it was so hard and you'd never get into vet school, but somehow they let me in. I I didn't actually get the grades, but I think they did listen to my experience um, and and let me in. I I didn't believe that for a bit, but anyway, they did let me in. I I still think it might have been a clerical error, but hopefully I've repaid them now. And uh, Uh, a second ago, a second ago, you said, I grew up on a farm and a zoo, and then you skipped over that. What's the zoo bit? Oh, so uh, I have an amazing neighbor. Unfortunately, he's passed on now, but he was called John Aspinall, and he was a gambler and an animal lover. So he was a high-class gambler. I'm talking megabucks. So in the 60s, he won the estate next to my father's in a bet um and he moved in he's the sort of guy that you know he owned a tiger and there's pictures of him on the king's road in london with his tiger on a lead um sports cars you know the lot he had a helicopter at one point but anyway he moved in and he had this beautiful estate and he had his own tigers and he had his own gorillas but over time you know, he was, he, he, they were for him and his family. But over time, he eventually did let the public in, I'd say late 60s, early 70s, but only to parts of the zoo. So even until now, um, it's, it's a big place now with all sorts of animals. Every animal is on a breeding project apart from the tigers because there's nowhere to, to release them, unfortunately. I think there's more tigers in captivity than there are in the wild. But every other animal is on release breeding and release projects. You can't see all of them, or if you can, you can only see one side of the cage, which is very much not the case on a lot of zoos. But anyway, so he has the biggest family of gorillas, lowland gorillas, um, anywhere in captivity. And uh, a huge herd of elephants. I live next door to 16 elephants um, and a lot of tigers, uh, all, all sorts. Um, and as a kid, I was the same age as his son. 
and I was able to go whenever I wanted freely between our farm and, and the zoo. I mean, even when I was in a pram, uh, my mum would take me there most days. I was obsessed with the elephants and just to watch, just watch them interact with each other. And, you know, I've seen videos when she would turn the pram around to go home. I would holler, <laughs> scream and holler uh, to be taken away from them. So I had a pretty lucky childhood in the fact that I was around these incredible, magnificent animals, but also our farm, we have a huge herd of cows, well, big for UK standards, uh, horses, ponies, dogs, chickens, you know, the lot. So my entire life revolved around animals and getting to know their behavior and understanding them. And that's really helped me as a vet as well. I was pretty surprised when I did get to vet school. I thought there'd be a lot of farm kids like me there, but most people have maybe had a pet dog. There was one other farm kid. Otherwise, you know, there was people who've never owned a pet at vet school and they got all of these A grades, but they've never owned a pet. I do think that's part of my skill as a vet is just understanding the nature of animals. And you can grow to know that. You know, the posture, the, 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 I know when a cat's going to attack or is going to be angry. I can see a dog walk in and I have a general idea sometimes what's wrong with it. Um, and that comes from knowing animals, which takes many, many years. So I had a very charmed upbringing surrounded by animals, all shapes and sizes, uh, which I am extremely grateful for. You know, Helen, I'm sitting here laughing. Hey, for you guys at home listening to this, um, Helen has, has, was a little bit nervous about coming on the podcast. Uh, Very nervous. And we've been trying to organize this for <laughs> several months now, but like one of the uh, Helen's early comments was like, well, who would who would want to listen to who would want to listen to my story? <laughs> and well, I wouldn't have anything inter- anything to say. Anything interesting people would find interesting. And then you just gloss over the fact that oh yeah, well I had animals as a kid in a zoo, and you just keep talking like that's not unusual. That that is completely unusual. Haven't how many elephants live in next door? Sixteen. Having 16 elephants living next yeah, door. Yeah, we've That's... got three babies. But actually, do you know what? All 16 in the next few years are going to be moved to Kenya. Are they really? whole lot. Yeah. It's a huge project. Huge uh, project. And uh, it's taken a lot of fundraising. But I think there's a big move to remove elephants from captivity because of their intelligence and rarity in the wild so it's a big project but over the next few years our entire herd will be moved to africa where in kenya are they going do you know i'm not sure at the moment it's all kind of in discussions and planning but they've announced they're going to do it so that's what they're working towards at the moment you know i'm a big fan of elephants too tyler and i went to the um Oh, what's I can't think of the guy's first name. It's this. It's the Sheldrake uh, uh, animal uh, elephant orphanage in Kenya, in Nairobi. In Nairobi, yes, I I, yeah. I volunteered there. Oh, bit. did you? Yeah. When we went there and they brought out the little elephant and they're feeding them with the bottles. That, that so you you volunteered there? Yeah, yeah. And I you fed the baby elephants there. with the bottles. Oh wow! Oh wow! 
I mean, they're magical, aren't they? They're incredible creatures. Yeah, they were amazing. There was one there when we were there that had got his trunk caught in a snare. Oh, God. About about halfway up, and it almost severed his trunk, and they weren't sure he was going to make it. But he... um, he was good, and they had these big, you know, the like fifty-five gallon, forty-four gallon barrel plastic, blue plastic barrels. They had them cut in half, like his water barrels there, and he had to stick his head all the way in it because because he had a hole halfway up his trunk. He couldn't suck with the end of it. Oh my gosh! And the, wow. yeah, it was yeah, those those was so cute. Okay, we're going to get to that later, though. I'm a big elephant fan, <laughs> so you. Uh, so then you, when you were in vet school, I imagine you didn't travel a lot during that time or did you? Well, I did a bit. So what I realized is that the drug companies are, are desperate to get you on side at vet school. Um, so if you come up with a project and, you know, you were willing to go speak to them about it or something like that, they would help fund it. So actually, yes, I did. And a, a big part of that was, was in Africa. That's where I wanted to be. Um, I wanted to work with elephants my whole life. I kind of went to vet school because I thought that's the route I wanted to go down. Maybe not as a zoo vet, but work um, in Africa. So I, I spent a lot of time in Africa and I, I managed to get quite a lot of it funded by the drug companies. Uh, so I didn't have a lot of money, but I really put the effort in. And um, there was only one other guy in my year of vet school who who did the same. It was kind of surprising. So at vet school, you have to do a lot of work experience in your holidays. You don't really get holidays. You have to work with vets. And that's really, to be perfectly honest, the only time I learned anything. I didn't I didn't really concentrate very hard at vet school. And it was all theory, whereas I'm quite a practical person. So you work your holidays with vets. Um, and, you know, that's that's the most important bit of vet school for most vets. So I managed to slightly twist the meaning of working with vets and go and work in Africa with wild animals. So, I, I yeah, I, that's when I volunteered at the Sheldrake Center. I worked with the Kenyan Wildlife Trust, um, who monitor diseases in in the wildlife. And I also spent a bit of time in, in South Africa in various different um, game parks. So yes, I, I did travel a bit. Did you have you when you were in Kenya? Did you go to Amboseli National Park at all? No, I've never been there? there. That looks stunning. Mm. Yeah, it was beautiful. That's where I went with Tyler and I went a couple of years ago. Um, okay, so that that's that's vet school. So when you got out of vet school, then because you own your own practice now, obviously you didn't have that when you got out of vet school. So what what was your next step out of uh, um, vet school? Yeah, so my first job, I don't really do things by halves. I wanted to work abroad. So I'd sort of thought by then I might not be cut out for being a wildlife vet. I have to say back then things might have changed, but it was quite a chauvinistic world. Male vets uh, were necessary. And also they wanted African vets. And, and, I, and I, you know, I don't blame them really. So I'd kind of gone away from that, but I really loved working in more developing countries. So my first job as a vet was in Morocco. And it was looking after donkeys. I worked for a, a British charity called Spanner, the Society for the Protection of Animals in North Africa. That was set up in the 1930s by a British woman who went on holiday to North Africa and saw the plight of the donkeys, which is 
which is pretty bad and unfortunately still is. But this charity was set up. So it's been going a long time. And I was uh, working for them in um, in Morocco. They have 12 different hospitals in Morocco. Each one had stabling facilities. And we would do basic procedures there. And people would bring their donkeys to the to the clinic as well. And we gave free treatment to everybody. But we also had a little truck. And every day, most days of the week, we would go out to a, a market out in the countryside, the same market on the same day each week to treat donkeys in the more rural areas. So we'd travel for several hours. We'd get there in the truck. Oh, my gosh, there could be 200 donkeys waiting for treatment. <laughs> so. It was a huge eye-opener because I spoke very basic French, which uh, most educated people in they speak, but in the rural areas, they don't speak French. They speak Berber, which is an unwritten language as well. So I was having to use a lot of miming sign language. And, you know, I had a, a technician, not really a nurse, but a technician who would come along with me and help. But it was... It was fabulous. That changed my life for sure. Working with working donkeys. So these are donkeys that people use to anything from plowing the fields to taking their produce to market to transporting wa- water um, to transporting people. A, a donkey is someone's life in a lot of countries. It's not a luxury like we have horses um, for, for for luxury in our countries, but there it, it really is someone's life and. The education was very poor, and there just didn't really seem to be the. There was a big disconnect between looking after your donkey so it would last longer to getting the most out of your donkey, and then oh dear, it's it's dead. And once it's dead, you know that's a huge blow for a family. So my job was patching up donkeys, horrible. Uh, sores from their harnesses, horrible bits. People were making bits out of bits of barbed wire and stuff like that. Um, I was worming, I was filing the teeth uh, and also education of the kids. We did an awful lot of that as well. There's there's not much point fixing up donkeys if the same thing happens again and again. So talking to people about, about welfare of donkeys and how to look after them and then trying to solve problems. So the reason that they were so bony is because they're they're not fed on much. You know, the people didn't have a lot, so the donkeys are not fed on much. But if they've got very sharp teeth, they can't chew. So, you know, what grain they have just comes straight out the back end. So filing teeth. And then we helped set up a women's cooperative who would make numbness. Like just, uh, you know, women, there's not many opportunities for work if they are allowed to work in those societies. But we had a women's only cooperative where they would come and stitch these numbness stuffed with straw or um, cotton. And we would give them out for free in the market to put under the, um, uh, the, the cart structure to, to try and stop the rubs. And also, so we for imported the people who don't know what a numna is. It's like a yes, sorry, like a saddle pad. Saddle pad, yeah, okay. And also the bits. Um, it was quite fortunate that I didn't understand Berber because I would go around the donkey park just cutting off these bits, these homemade horrible contraptions of torture. I would be being sworn at left, right, and centre. I'm sure. Um, I didn't need to understand the language to get that. 
but I would replace it with a very, you know, standard snaffle bit that we had made um, there and we would give out for free. So I would just connect it up and uh, off off they went. So I absolutely loved that job um, and traveled all around Morocco. So they had 12 different um, hospitals treating donkeys of all shapes and sizes, some horses as well. Uh, I also did a few uh, like mini experiments of my own. So I, I noticed that people would come every week to get their donkey wormed, which doesn't really help. It can actually cause resistance if you worm your horse or donkey every week. It's not necessary. No one had ever done any studies about the prevalence of worms. So I thought, well, I've got a microscope back at the clinic. Uh, so I took fecal samples um, from many, many, many different donkeys. And I wrote up a study that actually the prevalence was really low. And um, we didn't need to be worming them very often at all. But also to try and stop people coming every week to worm their donkey. Because I think it was perceived as some sort of magic potion, you know. Uh, how do you stop that? The donkeys don't have names. The people can't read or write. So there's no way of recording. But I was recognizing the same guys coming every week. So I devised a cunning plan is to just cut a chunk of tail just below the dock, the bone in the tail, a big chunk. Um, so it was very visible. And also I could time how long that grew uh, and, and then figure out how long ago they'd been wormed. So I kind of put all this lot together in, in a bit of a paper for a North African veterinary journal. <laughs> um, simple but effective is, is what you need to work in countries like that. That's amazing. Uh, and so how long did you spend in Morocco? I was there about four months, I think, in the end. Really? Yeah. Four or five months. Well, yeah. Yeah, absolutely yeah, loved it. It's a beautiful country. Um, so where did you go from Morocco? Oh, that's amazing. Where did you go from uh, Morocco? So then I took a job in, in Kent, which is the county where I grew up. It was relatively near my family and it was fabulous. It was, I think as a vet, it's so important to have a, a good support network in your first job. Because it's scary as hell, especially when you're working with horses, cows. I'm, I mainly dealt with large animals. You know, you're given a car full of drugs and a gun and you're told, you know, go to this farm, this farm, this farm, and you're on your own. But I was so lucky. I had the most amazing boss. He was called Errol um, and he was super supportive. He was a great guy and I really owe a lot to him. He would, you know, I'd be on call on my own my first week in the dark, going out to emergency calls at two in the morning. It's kind of sink or swim and it's terrifying. But he would always say, right, Helen, tonight I'll be in the Rose and Crown pub. Um, I won't be able to drive, but you can always call me or come and get me if you need me. <laughs> uh, so, so that was great. I did have a, a, a great, great start. Um, and he taught me a lot. I was going to say, just one second before we get too far away, I just learnt recently, I read somewhere, why British pubs are named like they are. I don't like know. Like the Rose and Crown or whatever. Because, back, like you were just saying, you were in Morocco and a lot, of people, a lot of people were not literate and they couldn't read and write. Well, back in the days when a lot of England people couldn't read and write, 
you couldn't have the name of the pub written there because they wouldn't know what it was. So they put symbols. Mm. So what do you say that one was called? The something on the crown? The Rose and Crown. The Rose and Crown. So we'd have a painting of a rose and a crown next to it. And so you remember, oh, that's 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 the pub I go to, the Rose and Crown. So yeah, just a little bit of little bit of trivia there for you. (laughs) You know, the funny what was funny about Morocco, so this ties into Mongolia somehow, long story. Not really, but so Chloe Phillips Harris, who organized the Mongolia Cold Amazing Camel Trip, lady. I first met her yeah. I first met her in New Zealand at a horse expo and I had a booth at this horse expo and she her booth was next door where she was it was a it was some sort of a non profit that helped donkeys in third world countries and Chloe was working for them. And that's how I met her because her booth was next door to to ours at this damn horse expo. Yeah, I think in, she did very in, similar in work Zealand. in Egypt and Fiji as yep. well. Yep, Egypt and Fiji is where she was, yeah. Yeah. And the pictures she showed me, like when you were talking right then, I'm like, yeah, most of the pictures she showed me were of, you know, like big wounds in their back. Like Huge big, wounds. Yeah, and then. Fistulous yeah, withers. I've never seen that in the UK where you get chronic rubs on the rivers and you get these huge non-healing abscesses. And farriery, one thing that we set up was a farriery course because, you know, they would, donkeys don't need shoes, so they weren't shod. But some of the horses were, or the donkeys that were pulling carts for bricks on the road, but they would get a car tire, they would hack a bit off, put the foot on it, bang some, you know, wood nails in and then chop the front of the toe off, make the foot fit the bit of rubber. It was just awful. And how to maim a donkey or a horse in one go. Uh, They would make circular shoes if they were going to make metal shoes. But again, it, it wasn't fitted to the hoof at all. So one thing that Spanner have set up and do very well is a uh, uh, an intensive nine-day farriery course. So they get vets, sorry, farriers from all over North Africa and they come and they live in and they get taught proper farriery. They get given a full set of tools um, and sent back to wherever they came from in North Africa to hopefully shoe horses properly and also spread their knowledge far and wide as well. So again, educating, grassroots educating does far more than just fixing the odd donkey. Yeah. <laughs> He'll love me for saying that. Yeah, I was pretty busy learning my trade. Um, it's it's it is terrifying and daunting becoming a vet. You really start from nothing, uh, and so I was very much concentrating on that. But but I I did leave after a few years, and I um, I wanted to travel a bit, so I took some time off and I went to New Zealand. I had a little bit of a hard time in life, you know, relationship breakup, that kind of thing. We won't go into that. But I ended up walking the length of New Zealand, which which wasn't really planned, but a bit of a Forrest Gump moment. Um, So I was away for quite a while till I ran out of money. And then 
came back and got another job in the UK again with mainly horses. Um, and yeah, I've done travels, but in and around work. So the maximum you can usually take off uh, time as a vet is two weeks. So I maximized any time I had off during those two jobs. Um, I did all sorts of ridiculous trips. I led a team of husky dogs across the Finnmark Plateau, which is in Arctic Norway in the winter. That was incredible. Um, kind of as near to as wild dogs as you can get, which as a vet, I found really fascinating seeing their natural behavior um, as pack animals. So I loved that, but I did frost nip my fingers uh, and couldn't feel anything for about three months, which wasn't great um, when you're trying to do surgery. But that was uh, one of the more memorable, tri- memorable trips I did at that point. But a lot of backpacking, you know, I'd love nothing better than grabbing my backpack and off I go to whether it be Thailand or Cuba or Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Oman, Jordan, Bhutan, <laughs> Nepal, India, all, all sorts of places I've been lucky enough to explore with my backpack. I am, you've got to slow down. I am still envisioning you walking the length of New Zealand. <laughs> oh, yeah. You walk both islands? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Okay, yeah. I, I was still trying to comprehend that, and then somehow you were in Finland with husky dogs, and I was still thinking about walking New Zealand, and then all of a sudden, oh, you just rattled off like 15 countries you went to. Wowzers. And this is all this is all little trips while you're – so this is before you had your own practice? Yes, most of yeah. those. Yeah. From that job, I I moved to London, actually. I realized I did need a social life as well as being a horse vet. That was hard, that job. That was lots of nights, weekends, and I wasn't in the best place um, personally. So I moved to London to a job that I didn't do any nights, and that, that was kind of transforming as well. And And I took a really crap job, actually, but it was dogs and cats. And it meant that I could finish at half six at night, shut the door, go home and have a social life. And, I, and, I, and I'd missed that. So it, it, it wasn't a great job. It wasn't a great boss. And I stuck it out for a few years. And then I approached my boss and said, it's time for me to leave. I've got big travel plans. Uh, I wanted to, you know, travel the silk route and do all sorts of things. I was pretty excited about it. And he said, oh, do you know what, Helen? I've been meaning to talk to you. I actually need to skip the country. I'm in a bit of financial trouble. If I paid you time and a half, would you manage the company for me um, for a bit? So in my head, I'm calculating, God, time and a half? If I stuck it out for six months, I could travel for even longer. Um, anyway. I'm still there 18 years later. So I I didn't get to do that trip. But the reason was he was going bankrupt. He was such a terrible manager and terrible vet that he'd bankrupted his own vet clinic. So I managed it for him while he skipped the country literally overnight. Um, And it was it was awful. It was truly awful. The company had no money to pay the staff, no money to pay the lab. So I couldn't get results for 
you know, blood tests and things like that. I couldn't get any supplies. It was dreadful, but I, you know, it was a massive learning curve into how not to run a vet practice. And I managed somehow by the skin of my teeth to find a finance. It was just before our credit crunch. Um, and I somehow managed to buy the clinic off him the day before it went bankrupt. So no one actually, no one else had to realize, you know, that the clients didn't realize the doors didn't close. And suddenly there I am owning two veterinary clinics in London, which was never my intention. But somehow, somehow I, I put myself in that position. And it was a few years of hell, to be honest, trying to build back up a really barely badly, very badly run clinic. Um, it was a labor of love. I don't think I would do it again if I known what was involved. But with a lot of blood, sweat and tears and a massive learning curve from being a vet to owning, you know, a big business is a, is a huge learning curve. You're not taught any business skills or HR or accountancy or marketing or all of that when you're at vet school, nothing. So I, I just did that by using my own common sense and eventually getting, hiring the right people to help me. But it was bloody awful. But it meant that ultimately I was in charge of my own destiny. I had complete autonomy. And if I wanted to then start traveling and, and volunteering abroad again, which I did an awful lot of, I I could. It was tough because leaving my own business for a few weeks is really, it was super tough, but I, but I made it work. And say so I'm here 18 years later in the same job. I never left it. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, a labor of love. Wow. That's pretty amazing. So your, um, some of your travels even after that were volunteering again, were they? Yep, absolutely. So I volunteered for Spana, the same charity. Uh, again, um, shorter stint, so as well as Morocco, Mali in West Africa, um, and then also in Jordan. I've done voluntary work for other charities, uh, Ethiopia, Pakistan, and then I've done quite a bit of work in India that's more been with street dogs and rabies vaccination projects. Um, that I really loved. So I worked again, volunteered for uh, an organization called Worldwide Veterinary Service, uh, who set up a training center in southern I India, in Uti, where Indian vets can come and learn how to neuter street dogs because Indian vets are not really taught any surgery at vet school. Very, very little. There isn't really the call for it in India. They are more farm vets on the whole and dispensing medication rather than hands-on treating private people's dogs and cats because that wasn't really a thing back then. It, it is now. You've got much more of a middle class in India now who do own dogs and cats. But um, but, but on the whole, we were we were dealing with rabies. So the rabies situation in India is, is horrifying. It's terrible. And 99% of cases come from street dogs biting children. So as uh, the way that they deal with that, if they get a case of rabies, the council or the local councillors will basically order a strychnine poisoning of the entire village. 
And that kills not only the local street dog population, but all of the rats and mice and the birds of prey and anything else that eats it in a horrifying way. And then what happens is there's a bit of a, a gap in the market and you get street dogs come from all over the surrounding areas to fill it. They're very territorial street dogs, they will say, in the same area. And also the, the local population will feed their kind of street street dogs. So they're often relatively tame. So anyway, it's a pretty terrible situation because you're not solving the problem. So it took a British vet um, who worked out in India about, 15 or 20 years to prove to the politicians that if you actually capture, neuter, vaccinate and release these street dogs, it keeps the population stable and therefore the rabies situation under control. So it took an awful lot of years of trying to prove this and looking at hospital numbers of rabies cases. But finally they did. So the government then agreed to pay Indian vets to neuter street dogs. But if they've never been taught how to neuter, uh, you know, that can go horribly wrong. There's no way you should embark on surgery like that. It's serious surgery. It's life or death stuff. Unless you do it properly, you do it humanely as well. So this charity set up a center where Indian vets from all over India and also the, the technicians, so they're not trained nurses, so we call them technicians, but they're the ones that are going to catch the street dogs. And I'll come on to that in a minute. But also they are administering um, the IV catheter. They're administering the IV fluids and they're monitoring the anesthetics. So they all need to be trained as well. So it's a live-in 10-day course. Um, I got involved with the technicians. Uh, in the afternoons, we would go to the local villages and try and catch street dogs, which involves running around with a massive butterfly net, chasing these dogs all around the slums, through temples, past um, people's houses, through washing lines. It's hilarious. I was terrible at it. But you try and catch them in a big butterfly net, and um, they're terrified, you know, obviously. And also the local people think that you're going to kill them. So they come out screaming, everyone's screaming, and um, the guys I was with would have to calm everybody down and tell them what we're doing. We're going to bring them back in a few days, but they will be neutered and they will be vaccinated against rabies. So we would put them in the truck. They'd spend the night in the truck together, usually about 10 or 15, um, so that they're pre-starved for the next morning. And the next morning would be surgery time. So, um, uh, you know, going through all the different drugs, proper pain relief, proper sterile technique, operating theatres. Um, training the technicians and then training the vets how to neuter, male and female, and then keeping them for three days in the kennels. There's meticulous notes taken of where they pick these dogs up from, which street, where, and if we were happy with the wounds and their recovery after three days, we would then take them back to the same street. Um, and they'd be vaccinated. The top of their ear is just chopped off as well while they're under anaesthetic, so it's very obvious from afar that they've been neutered because obviously with a female dog you wouldn't be able to tell from the outset. Um, and then in the afternoon I would be giving lectures on rabies, on how to set up uh, rabies vaccination drives. So people, some, some vets, there's no way they could have the facilities or afford the facilities to neuter, but one thing they can do is at least set up a, a rabies vaccine um, project in their local area, catch the dogs, vaccinate them, um, mark them as vaccinated, and then release them. The life of a street dog is, is probably not 
that long, maybe a few years. So just one vaccine should protect them for most of their life. So it was a really fascinating project and it was wonderful to meet vets and, and technicians from all over India. I'm still in touch with, with many of them now. Um, and that was so successful that that project has been extended to Thailand and also South America now. And they also take on other nationality vets, new grads often, uh, who pay a bit and come and learn how to neuter and, and live in India or, and do the course as well. You know, they pay and that helps fund it as well. But ultimately, it's funded by different charities, most of them British charities and a bit from the um, Indian government. And then those Indian vets can now earn a little bit from the government by neutering street dogs. I did hear one quite funny story is that some vets were perhaps not not quite telling the truth on how many dogs that they'd neutered perhaps to, to up their payment at the end of the month. So there was a drive to set up a, uh, they had to keep the bits they removed. So all the testicles and the uteruses in a big jar of formalin. And some poor bastard from the government then had to come round these different clinics and count out the bits. Can you imagine? Oof. I don't know if that's still going on, but it did for a while. <laughs> how did how did you like India? Because India kind of fascinates me. I'm oh, pretty wow. fascinated by India. I think it's love or hate. I I've been to back to India many many times. All over India, it's the most fascinating country on earth for me. It's got everything: beaches, mountains, jungles, deserts, temples beyond age. The culture is incredible. And so diverse. People are wonderful. It, it really does hit you in the face when you land, for sure. And for some people, that is too much. The poverty is, is horrifying and, and striking. And I can't say that I, I would ever get used to that, particularly in the big cities. It, it really is horrifying. But the noise, the traffic, the color, the, the sun, the dust, everything, it's... it's Ooh, it hits you slap bang in the face. Um, but I absolutely love it. And I can't wait to go back. I'm hoping to go back in about a year's time if COVID is under control. Yeah, I don't know if that's going to happen. Uh, as, yeah. we, <laughs> as we record this, there's that new variant that just came out of Africa a couple of days ago. So South yeah. Africa. So we'll have to see what happens with that yeah. one. Um, wow. So... What about travels that where you weren't volunteering? You've been to some pretty crazy places yeah, with those so two, haven't you? I guess I, I, I thrive on long, arduous journeys. Type 2 fun, where it's not necessarily fun at the time, but looking back, it was bloody awesome. So I've done some really long, difficult expeditions journeys. Um, so one I did was crossing Madagascar east to west through jungle, hacking through jungle with a bunch of people. That was one of the most brutal things I've done. It was three weeks, um, no hope of rescue. There is nobody there. Uh, that was phenomenal. Within a day uh, of leaving the coast, we were traveling through villages to start with. Most people had never seen a white person. And that was, you know, it's it's quite a privilege and, and it's very important how you act and how you are perceived. 
and there's a huge responsibility there but it's a huge privilege um massive privilege and and uh, places like that places which are which are wild which are which are not much visited uh, are where i thrive on so that's the places i've picked um maybe i've become a bit of a travel snob and i and i've been to a lot of the places where people generally travel so i pick more wild and and remote places so madagascar was incredible very hard work brutal i've got many scars all over my body from that flesh eating parasites wounds you name it trench foot but but i made it um climbed the highest mountain there as well um other places afghanistan um in the mountains of afghanistan live the the wacky people so I made a, an expedition to 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 basically trek up to see them, to see how they live. They're herdsmen with goats and sheep living a really, really tough life. Away from all the politics and Taliban and all that kind of stuff. They're way too remote for anyone to bother with them. Um, but fascinating people, uh, nomadic. So that was, again, so, quite a brutal expedition. How did um, you find them? Like, not find them, but how did you, like, how did you put your finger on that spot on the globe and go, hey, those are the guys I want to go hang with? How did you discover them? <laughs> I think uh, I read a lot. I, I I look at a lot online and uh, that part of the world has always fascinate, fascinated me. They're very much more Central Asian than perhaps people would perceive. Uh, and um, we also traveled through the Kyrgyz area. So again, nomadic, still part of Afghanistan. But mountain people, uh, horse people, um, the Kyrgyz are the the people that they play buzkashi, which you might have heard of. It's the kind of national game, national sport of Afghanistan. With a very small goat. claim to fame. It, it's where they uh, play something between polo and rugby with a dead goat, a headless mm, yes. goat. Yeah. Um, on horseback. It's violent. It's fast. I have no idea what the rules are, but uh, women are not even allowed to watch. But obviously as Westerners, they didn't really mind us watching. But then I was asked if I rode. I'm like, yeah. So they gave me some sort of beach donkey of a horse to sit on and I was getting on all right. Um, so eventually they sort of said, do you want to play? There's a game going on in front of me. And I'm like, well, yeah. You know, women are not allowed to watch. They're certainly not allowed to play. Um, but then I thought, well, hell, let's give it a go. So in amongst them, I went. Again, I don't know what side I was on, let alone what the rules are, but I got amongst them. To start with, they I think they were pretty reticent. They were pretty hesitant about hurting me because it's really violent. You know, they're pushing people off. I saw people with needles, like stabbing them in each, you know, they were injuring each other on purpose to win the game. So they were a bit standoff to start with, but the more I got involved and I pushed and shoved and, and gave it my all as well, the more they just let me be. And, and, and that was one of the most horrifying, uh, painful half an hour of my life. And again, I have scars from that as well. Um, but I think a very small claim to fame is I might well be the first woman to have played Buskashi in Afghanistan. <laughs> I've no way of knowing that, but they'd certainly um, never seen it before. 
That's amazing. Do you know how to spell that? Like, I'm sure people, I'm like, I've seen video of it on, on YouTube or something or other, but people need to look that up. How do, do you know how to spell that I thing? think it's B-U-Z-K-A-S-H-I. That's how mm. I spell it anyway. Yeah, have a look at that. I mean, I imagine if you typed in Afghanistan game with dead goat on horseback. Uh, I'm sure it will come up. It'll pop up what it is. But if you haven't ever seen what that looks like, you need to have a look at it because it's pretty crazy. <laughs> it is violent. I mean, as 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 a vet, I was also the medic. So when I wasn't playing, because these games go on for hours and hours and hours, I, I was done and injured and, and in pain by the end of half an hour. But I then took on the role of patching up the riders. We had guys with black eyes, bleeding noses, too unconscious. They just got dunked in the, in the river, the ice cold river to, to wake them up again. We had a guy with his femur showing, you know. And they have no medication. There's n- there's nothing there. We're, we're days from from help. So I was part of an expedition which had uh, a medical box. So at least we had some antibiotics and some painkillers. So I set up a little area where I could at least patch people up, <laughs> which I think they were quite happy with. The guy with a bit of femur showing, I could see his femur. Um, I patched him up, gave him some painkillers, some antibiotics, cleaned it. And off he rose and he said it was going to take him five hours to get home. And it was dark by then. <laughs> off he went. Bloody hell. God knows God what knows happened, what but he wasn't, bothered. he wasn't bothered. See, and that's, that's something about, you know, what's it like being around people? I mean, they've got to be a different people than us modern people. Like oh, they are things, You know what I mean? Um, they're not hunter-gatherers, but, you know, like people who don't have access to all the things we have, both medical and whatever else, but they've got to be, they've just got to have a different mindset about, you know, I I was doing a, a clinic in Australia a few years ago, and there was a, a lady at the clinic from South Africa, and that night at dinner, we, um, I happened to be sitting next to her and I said, so how long have you been in Australia? And she said, oh, only three years or something like that. And I said, so how do you like Australia? She goes, well, the energy here is different. And I thought she was going to say, yeah, it's kind of laid back and beachy vibe, you know, whatever. And mm-hmm. I said, what do you mean? She goes, well, there's just not as much of it. And I'm like, what do you mean there's not as much energy? She goes, oh, when I get off the plane in South Africa, when I get off the plane, the energy of South Africa just hits me. And I said, well, what do you think that is? And she goes, oh, that's easy. She says, that energy is every man and animal in Africa knows today's the day I could die. Yeah, she's right. Right. And when you, you know, you don't have the security of, you know, law and order, police, ambulances, hospitals, all that sort of stuff. Life's just got to have a bit of a, imagine it's got to be more vibrant. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think you see that all over the world. We in, you know, the developed world have it easy. And I think traveling around so much, the energy for sure, the entrepreneurial skills, you, you have to earn a living somehow. There aren't companies that will give you a job and pay you a monthly salary in in most of these areas i mean take mongolia where we were both together those people have to survive 
and and every day they strive to survive um against the weather uh you know with their livestock whatever it might be but absolutely that takes vibrant energy and these guys in Afghanistan also knew how to have fun and their fun was was partying and and playing this game between the local nomadic groups um risking their lives i mean if you break your leg then you you know you can't be a hunter gatherer or a shepherd so it was risky but they were prepared to take that your story about the guy breaking his leg and then going to ride our five hours home in the dark kind of reminded me of our last two herders in Mongolia. Uh, Genghis. Who we, we nicknamed <laughs> Genghis Khan and the Godfather. But <laughs> wow. wow. They were a couple. But, you know, that last day we get to camp and, you know, it's late in the afternoon and they, oh, off they go. They give us a wave and set off out across the plains there with their with their herd of camels. And we know that they're going to, you know, it's going to be minus whatever it is that night and they're going to ride six or eight hours in the dark to get home. Yeah, in the dark. Across, that was pretty I, I rough I don't know how right they did that. Too. Yeah. Unbelievable. No GPS, no, nothing to show them where to go. Across the plains, there's no, there's nothing to, there's no landmarks there even. I mean, I guess they use the stars, but that was, they were double hard bastards. <laughs> they were awesome. That's. But again, Cheeky chappies as well, knew how to have fun. Oh, yeah, that's the best description for them too, the double hard bastards. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, I've, I've told the story. I think we talked about it when Chloe was on the podcast, but the night that they showed up, we're in the, you, were you in the girl that night when they yeah, showed up? Yeah, absolutely. So Again, they showed up at, in the dark. It's nine o'clock at night. It is freezing cold outside, and these two new herders show up because we were getting our last set of camels, so – they bought the the new lot of camels, but they'd come in the gur about nine o'clock at night. And when you um, they when you go in the gur at night time, they'll give you a, a bowl of fermented camel's milk to drink, and the bowl, and then the stuff is boiling hot, and the bowl. Oh you yeah, can't it was hold scalding. You can't hold them in your hand because they'll burn your hand. No. So these 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 two, as Helen said, double hard bastards, <laughs> walk in. You know, it's nine o'clock at night, so we know they've just ridden in the dark with a herd and a herd of camels in minus Bull 20 degrees. What's that? They were covered in fur. They were, covered in fur. They were amazing. Amazing um, outfits. They, they walk in just because you don't knock when you go into a girl. You just go in. So they walk in, walk around to the left and sit down, and the lady hands them a, each a bowl of this boiling hot stuff, and these bowls are so hot. And they just hold it in their hands and start slurping out of the bowl, and we're just and they're just looking at us over the over the rim of their bowls. They don't say a word, and they're just looking at us. And it was like, holy shit! You know, yeah. I think the last night that we're was in an Ulaanbaatar, the last night we're in Ulaanbaatar when we went out to dinner before we all left the country the next day. We had a dinner, and and I think we went around the table and like, well, I think that was when it was. But at some point in time, what was your favorite moment? of the trip and that was most if it what if that was it was the favorite moment of the trip was either that or most people said either that or singing hallelujah in the cave in the cave that was incredible in a pitch black cave inside a mountain in mongolia yeah that still makes me emotional thinking about it that the 
Buddhist monks hid from communist persecution. Pretty cool stuff. Um, so you have another story about Afghanistan, don't you? I have Something many. To do with the Taliban. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> so we were a little, a little removed from the Taliban. I mean, most of the time, as we crossed into the border, they were only about twenty kilometers away. So that was pretty scary. But when we were up in the mountains, they were nowhere near us. So we felt quite safe. Um, but you know, we would try and camp. We were camping and carrying all our gear. We did have a, a pack horse as well and a yak as as well when we got really high. But uh, we camped near a family often, and then we would be able to sit in their gur at night. Um, and they would often have a fire, and we could thaw out because it was freezing cold, really high, three and a half thousand meters, four thousand meters high, and snowy. Um, so. Yeah, often they would have a girl, especially for for visitors, where where we could just hang out and eat. Um, and they were as fascinated by us as we were of them. And one night we were sat in the girl, and this guy again just came straight in, sat down, and he looked at us. He had eyes, bright blue eyes. He looked very different. He wasn't from that tribal area. Very very different. And he was looking at us with hate in his eyes, which I've just never seen. We could tell he was not happy about us being there. I didn't understand who he was at all or what was going on, but you could feel this bad vibes across the girl. This guy was hateful of us. Um, and it turned out he was a Taliban member. Um, he couldn't do a lot all on his own there, but he was there to buy sheep and take them back and he was trading in opium so um he a lot of the people are hooked on opium in that part of the world and uh i was quite good friends but we had like a guy with us we had a guide and we had someone to help with the cooking and the supplies and stuff like that and i was getting on quite well with them and chatting about all sorts and they were talking about opium and I quite wanted to try it. So anyway, this guy bought some opium and I found out later that the, the, the guy sold quite a lot of our supplies for the opium. So we ended the expedition with no food at all, barely anything for the last two days because uh, unbeknownst to any of us, he'd sold it for opium. But, but anyway, that night I did uh, go back to my tent, try and go to sleep, and then the, 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 the guy from from the kitchen woke me up and said now's your chance do you want to come and join us so i was like well it's now or never so there was me him and the taliban guy um yeah smoking opium and they have a specialist opium smoking tent in each village which i didn't know about um so it was it it was quite anxious uh an evening but um yeah i guess that 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 was me smoking opium with with the taliban member he wasn't happy about me being there, but it's something that you only get to do once in your life. So uh, that was my chance. Not, not only do you only get to do it once in your life, you might be doing something that no other Western woman. Maybe. Taking a few risks, but, but, but I live to tell the tale. I think with risks and traveling, my brother taught me very early on 
you've got to use your heart. Go with your gut feeling, your very first gut feeling when you're putting yourself in situations. Um, things can go horribly wrong, and, I, and I've taken some ridiculous risks, a lot of stuff I will never tell my mother. <laughs> but um, I've always gone with my gut feeling, and if it isn't right, if it doesn't feel right, I've I've not gone ahead. You know, I, I'm not the sort of person that will put myself in ridiculous risks that I feel are, are wrong. I value my life and uh, and I want to keep doing this for a long time. But but there are certain things that I've been a little on the edge, which which I've gone ahead with after some thought. You know, quite a few of the guests on the podcast, we get to talking about things that they do, people who are, you know, quite successful in their whatever it is they do. And a lot of it comes down to being able to say yes to opportunities that arise. Absolutely. And so you happen to be sleeping in the tent and someone come in and said, hey, you want to smoke opium with the guy from the Taliban? And you said, well... Okay, um, why not? Yeah, uh, um, saying yes is is a big feature. I think I, I should probably learn to say no more. My life is utterly, utterly hectic because I say yes to to most things, adventures, people. I find it very hard to say to say no, but but I grab opportunities as well. Yeah, well, there's 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 grabbing opportunities. And I think that's different from learning to say no, because so, you know, I send out 20 questions to everybody who comes in the podcast and they choose, you know, four to seven of them or whatever. And you've chosen some here. One you didn't choose, but it's one of the questions in that, in that list of questions is in the last five years, what have you become better at saying no to? And it's usually, that's usually not addressing opportunities. That's usually addressing I don't know, probably your people-pleasing tendencies. You know, I can't say no because of what someone will think of me or or whatever, you know what I mean? I I, I think that the saying yes to opportunities is, is different than the saying the saying no because I think the the saying yes to opportunities is probably about being brave, maybe a bit vulnerable, whereas the saying no is more about giving up those people-pleasing tendencies that we all have that kind of get in our way a little bit. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. Um, but I'm definitely better at saying yes. <laughs> it sounds like it. Speaking of those questions, why don't we, why don't we get to <laughs> Helen Spencer's okay. questions here? Uh, you probably answered some of these because the last one hey. was, what did you want to be as a kid? And you said. That's easy. <laughs> that's a no-brainer. That's a bit. I wanted to be a I want to be an adventurous veterinarian. Well, you can check that one off your list because you are definitely <laughs> that. Uh, so if you had a message you wanted to spread to the world, what would it be? Don't be an asshole. Now, I say that in all seriousness. It sounds candid, but I think don't be an asshole to yourself, to others, and also, you know, our environment nature, animals, the planet. I think the Dalai Lama probably words it slightly better than me, but he says to follow the three R's in life, which is respect, 
for yourself, respect for others, and respect for all your actions. But ultimately, don't be an asshole. I think that's a that's a very concise message. Okay, so what is this? This has got to be great. What's the most worthwhile thing you have ever done with your life? Well, I, I guess that's volunteering. Um, I, I've done a lot of it. I do a lot of it here in London when I can't travel, but I I, I get a massive kick out of it. Um, I think that's by far the most worthwhile thing I've done. So volunteering as a vet. Um, here's for street bet uh, with donkeys, with um, with the rabies vaccination projects. That's definitely for me been the most worthwhile thing. But also, it's taught me the most, and I've grown because of it. It's not always been easy. You see some really difficult things, um, but I will keep on doing that till till the day I drop. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that that's. I didn't know that part about you, but I, I, I find that that's a very admirable quality in anybody, especially in you. Okay, so what is the accomplishment you are most proud of? Probably just basically being a, a vet. You know, I'm I'm proud of that. That's who I am. I, I'm amazed I got through vet school, but um, and and where it's taken me. But, but ultimately, yes, I'm proud to be a vet, but I think the really hard physical beats that I've managed are when I personally am proud of myself. I'm quite hard on myself. I'm quite a perfectionist and I'm never particularly happy with myself, but conquering a mountain or something that, um, conquering something difficult is when I feel the most at ease with myself and I guess that's being proud of myself wow so so you walked the length of New Zealand you took the the huskies across Finland you hacked your way through Madagascar from one side to the other what are some of the major physical feats you've done have you ever climbed Mount Everest no I have been to Everest base camp uh, because I, I've always wanted to climb Everest uh, since I was a kid. I have the picture on my wall here. I mean, that's what I've wanted to do. And I've grown up with all the stories around it. So I took myself to Everest Base Camp with with a lady who climbed it the year before. Um, and I hung out at Base Camp for a bit. And uh, I think what I realized is the whole logistics of of getting there, of Base Camp. There's about 2,000 people plus um, in the climbing season at base camp, um, that's what I wanted. The the death rate is huge. You walk past all of these memorials, and that was before the huge avalanche and 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 um, earthquakes and things. Every year, people die. And for me, as a you know, just a hobby climber, it's not worth it. There's many more things I want to do in life. But I've been there. I've stared it in the face. I've spent time. I've looked at it every day. And I've spent time with, with people climbing it. And I've seen dead people who, who didn't make it. And I, I no, <laughs> I do not want to climb Mount Everest. But I've climbed many other peaks. And uh, 
getting to the top of any peak, whether it be in the UK or, or a, a huge alpine peak elsewhere, is the most incredible feeling. I bitch and moan at myself all the way up. I hate walking uphill, but I keep doing it to myself. And uh, getting to the top does make you feel proud. What's the highest peak you've climbed? Don't really know numbers. I climbed uh, some high peaks in New Zealand uh, and also in the Alps, uh, Alpine peaks. Um, the highest I've been, well, probably is um, Kalampatar, which is just before Everest, is about five and a half thousand meters. Um, and I've also been to that height in India, but on a motorbike. Wow. Um, what I want to ask about Everest Base Camp. Yeah. What's the, I mean, I was going to ask you, what's the atmosphere like there? And I mean the energetic atmosphere. I mean, I just think while you were talking about Everest, I was thinking about my son, Tyler, lives in Hawaii. And we went and visited him recently. And everybody he hangs out with there is from somewhere else. And they're all very adventurous. They all rock climb, they surf, they skydive, they dive with sharks. They, they're all very similar in, 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 in like levels of adventureness, adventurousness, I guess. I imagine, you know, being at Everest Base Camp, there's so much of that there. I mean, there's no slackers. Oh, like it's everybody's got to be. What's, what's that like? It's fascinating people from all over the world and people trying to climb it for various, so many different reasons, but, you know, to be the first guy with Crohn's disease or to be the first blind person from Sri Lanka to climb it, everyone has this kind of agenda going on. Um, but there's also the buzz of, there's so many people involved in log logistics who, who I was hanging out with, the weather, the communications, there was better Wi-Fi there than, you know, anywhere in that vicinity um in Nepal because people need to uh Instagram it. I mean this was in the days before Instagram, but you know, they need to record what they're doing to report back. Um I hung out with the medics a lot. Uh, I found altitude medicine fascinating and I got to spend a few days in Everest Base Camp, which is a volunteer run uh medical camp set up there at Everest Base Camp. And um, doctors from all over the world come and do a stint there. And you're not just dealing with high altitude, um, you know, frostbite and broken legs and things like that. You're actually, the, the, the Western climbers, uh, if you pay $100 towards the Everest Base Camp, it means that all of your Sherpas and porters can also visit Everest, um, the, the, the medical tent. And what that meant is we were seeing people from the lowlands in Nepal who had heard that they could see a Western doctor and they have no way of doing that normally is they will carry massive loads to Everest base camp. Um, they're, they're not Sherpas from the mountains. They were from the lowland just to be able to see a doctor. So we were seeing all sorts of things um, from leprosy to, to horrible skin conditions and all sorts of things. So that, that was a really fascinating part of being uh, at base camp. Um, chatting to all the climbers, learning about the, the Sherpas and their culture. It's a very spiritual place for them and they don't take it lightly. There's a lot of puja ceremonies that go on before people climb and also when 
you perhaps uh, have people who haven't made it. I was in one camp when word went round that they were noticing that the kind of crows, ravens, something like that, were flying around with bits of hair and human clothing. And what that means is that a body's been uncovered from the melting ice somewhere near Everest Base Camp. So we were all dispatched to see if we could find a dead body. Some of these people may have fallen in halfway up Everest. Some may have been last year. Some may have been 20 years ago, but they're swallowed up in a crevasse. And then eventually that crevasse moves down the mountain and they end up somewhere near base camp and the ice melts and their body is revealed. So we found three people like that. It's impossible to say how long they had been dead. You know, they're, they're white, they're frozen in time. But, but it was quite a spiritual thing that the, how the Sherpas dealt with it. It then becomes a complete logistical nightmare and whose embassy is going to pay for that nationality person to be removed or do the families want them left there? It was really like mind-blowing what the life and death on Everest. But all of that adds up to the most fascinating place on the planet and I was just so happy to hang out there and meet all of these people and find out how it all worked and have no intention of, of climbing Everest now. Wow, that's some pretty heavy shit right there. Any other amazing adventures you want to share with us? Uh, a few. I mean, more recently, I have always wanted to learn to ride a motorbike, but it's the sort of thing I've never got round to. So a cousin of mine phoned me one Christmas a few years ago and said, right, we're going to India to ride Royal Enfields. I'm like, but I, I can't ride a motorbike. He's like, well, bloody learn. So, so I did. Uh, I, uh, I went and bought a little motorbike in, in London once the snows had melted and I started commuting on the London traffic, which was terrifying. Um, I didn't get as far as taking my test. Uh, so three months later, I was in India riding a really big Royal Enfield. In England, sorry, in England, you can ride a 125cc motorbike with just a day course. You don't have to do your test. Um, but we were riding 800cc Royal Enfields, um, which are huge, and across uh, right up into the Himalayas. You know, it was three weeks, I think, and we went from the muddy foothills of the Himalayas right up into Ladakh. Uh, and then all the way to five and a half thousand meter passes, the highest navigable pass in the world, and then finished up in Kashmir. So it was an incredible journey because we went from Hindu uh, Manali, Hindu Manali, into very Buddhist area of uh, Ladakh, which is very rocky and dry, but very very high and isolated. And then into Kashmir, which is very green. It actually looks a bit like Switzerland and, and Muslim. So at, that was an incredible journey, utterly terrifying. I fell off seven times in the first two days, mainly because of mud road conditions. Um, there's cows on the road. There's massive trucks. There's checkpoints. There's everything and everything thrown at you and the weather and the altitude. But somehow... I survived that. That was type two fun. Um, and uh, two years later, I got my motorbike license in England. 
Um, I imagine uh, 800cc Royal Enfield is probably not easy to pick up either when you lay it down. No, no, you do not want to drop them. Absolutely not. No. (laughs) No. Very heavy bikes, beautiful bikes. Um, It it was a phenomenal trip, a huge uh, learning curve, but fascinating. And I got to do that with some of my cousins who all, all live in Canada. So it was a really good chance to hang out with them and experience Indian roads. You know, some of these huge mountains, one of them had 52 switchbacks. And doing a hairpin bend on a motorbike when you're a real novice is really not very easy. Um, but add in mud and, you know, 20 army trucks coming the other way at you, it's it's pretty hairy. But I didn't drop the bike. Uh, Apart from falling off, and then I had people around. You need two people to pick it up again. Right. No, that's what I meant about the falling off, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, okay. We need to get to the rest of your questions here. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Uh, one of your questions that you chose was, how do you relieve stress or recharge? I think we found that out. It's like traveling to 80-something countries. <laughs> yeah, and pushing myself physically. That's how I recharge. If I'm in a difficult situation very stressful, you know, mental health type of situation, I push myself to the limit physically and, and that's how I recharge. Some people sit on a beach. <laughs> I've never really done that. No, you don't seem like the beach sitting type. Okay, so tell us a myth about your profession. I, I guess a huge one that I come across every day is that, you know, vets are out to make money off people. Vets charge this for, for this, you know, it's always aimed at the vets. This is a terrible paid profession in the UK. Huge amounts of stress. Uh, as we touched on the highest suicide rate, I think clients are hugely hard on their vets. Um, people believe that we should be treating animals for free for some reason. Do you know how much we study, how much equipment we have? In the UK, we have a wonderful free health service. I know it's not quite the same in the US, but people don't really understand how much drugs cost. So things cost money and uh, having animals is is a luxury. So I guess the myth is please be kind to your vets. Give them a break. Animals are not machines. And sometimes we get it wrong. We try not to. We try our level best. But you know what? It hurts us as much as as it does you. It's a hugely emotional and stressful job. So please be kind to your vet. Great advice. Yeah, I think that that's that would be a huge part of the 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 toll on vets, wouldn't it? Not just the the stress of the job, but the you know, you're not working with a piece of machinery here. You're working with a sentient being, and I'm sure you get attached to your patients. And oh, god, yes, god, yes, and yeah, they don't obey the rules of medicine sometimes. And we absolutely do our best with every single patient, whether it be loving us or biting us or kicking us. Um, but we have to work with financial constraints of the owner and it's really tough talking about finance and balancing that with the love of an animal it's really tough yeah that's going to be tough so you have one question left here that you chose uh Mm. and the question is what is the luckiest thing that's ever happened to you 
now I've got to put a caveat on it here. Apart from probably being the first woman to ever play the dead goat game on horseback in Afghanistan, or possibly the first white, first Western woman to ever smoke opium with the Taliban. Well, apart from those mm. two, what's the luckiest thing that's ever happened to you? I I would honestly say my my childhood, being born into my family. I come from a wonderful, big, loving family who gave me every opportunity, and that's who. That's why I am who I am. I had huge amounts of freedom growing up on a farm uh, with not too many restrictions. And I've always been massively encouraged by my parents. You know, they've always done everything to make sure I have every opportunity and and encourage me. Um, perhaps too much sometimes, but yeah, my family. That, that's the luckiest thing to have ever happened to me, to be born amongst them. That's, you know what, that's amazing. That's That's a great answer. You know, I think, I think you're okay. So you're lucky to have that that upbringing, but then you've you know been lucky enough too to have that that outlook of of I don't know accepting the challenges or accepting the you know embracing the opportunities that come your way because you know you the the crazy life that you've lived doesn't just knock on your doorstep and say hey you want to come with me you've got to. You've got to yeah, seek you've that Yeah, you've got to out. go out there and get it. Mm. Someone recently said to me, um, you know, they they came from a family who have traveled, uh, who haven't lived in one place. You know, their family have moved countries several times. She's been to 10 different schools. And so when she she's a vet, she qualifies. She's not really ever traveled. And uh, I think she put, she talked about the fact that I come from a, a very, very solid oak tree in life with huge roots. I come from an incredibly traditional family who have belong on a farm and we're all very close. And that's given me wings. You know, I know that I have these huge roots and I always come back. My farm, my upbringing, my, where I come from is the most beautiful place on earth. And it's my safe space, and and that's that's the most remarkable place I've ever been to, um, and and that's why I'm lucky to have been brought up there. But but I think I'm able to travel because I always have this huge loving network to come to come back to at the end of the day. Yeah, that's, you know, you said they they gave you these huge wings, but you know, you chose to flap them as well. So that you know, and that's one of the reasons <laughs> yeah. I wanted to have you on the on the podcast is. Uh, you know, I, I just think you're an inspiration. And I didn't know all really? about the, the, oh, yeah, I didn't know about the volunteer stuff. But like just the, you know, just that adventurous spirit and just trying to, you know, spend your life experiencing all the richness that the earth has to offer and just, just seeing different cultures. And I mean, that's got to, you know, that's got to shape who you are as well as. Absolutely. You know. I'm just hugely curious. I mean that that that's just innate in me. It, even being shut in London during lockdown for three or four months, I have now explored every inch of my city. I, I can't sit still. I've I've taught myself all the history. I've I've 
walked and cycled every street. I'm just like a sponge of knowledge. I'm just hugely curious, but, but learning about different cultures makes you hugely appreciate your own and where you come from and your, you know, your privilege, my privilege. I think it makes you a better person. And, and I think everyone should, should travel outside their comfort zone um, at some point in their life to appreciate where they come from. You know, I'm a big fan of the saying, uh, leaving and coming back is not the same as never having left. Absolutely. You're a different person every time you come back. Usually for the better. Usually for the better, yeah. Um, I don't know if I told you in Mongolia, but oh, a couple of months before we met in Mongolia, Tyler and I were in Holland and we I was presenting at a horse expo in Holland and we had a day off and we took a bicycle tour of um, historic Amsterdam. So the historic parts of Amsterdam about the, you know, mm -hmm. the Dutch East India Company and the whole bit. And we were tootling around these bicycles with a group and we pulled up uh, to have a cup of coffee at this little cafe thing. We're sort of sitting around and one of the guys in our group, I said, oh, how many countries, because he sounded like he traveled a lot. And I said, how many countries you've been to? And he'd been to 90 something countries, I think. And I said to him, you know, I read something the other day that said there's a diminished rate of return after about 25 or 26 countries. Once you've been to 25 or 26 countries, there's a diminished rate of return for your time and money investment. Have you ever noticed that? And he said, no, I've not really encountered that at all. And I thought, hmm, well, maybe the thing was wrong that I read, you know. Anyway, we're chatting and about five minutes later, I said, so what's a what's your favorite country you've ever been to? And he thought about it for a minute and he said, uh, whichever one I'm in now. And I'm <laughs> Good like, answer. that's why he doesn't have a diminished rate of return because he's not comparing this experience to that experience. He's just being present and taking in what's in front of him. You know what I mean? And I thought that's a, yeah. Cause once you've seen 25, 26 countries, you've seen a lot of different cultures and then you're like, Oh yeah, I've seen this before. If you want to look at it that way, but if you want to forget about what you've yeah. seen and just be present to what's going on in front of you, you don't have that diminished rate of return which I thought was a pretty fascinating concept. Okay, so let's give a blurb to any of the um, these places you volunteer in case anybody wants to volunteer or do something or donate or whatever, do something for them. What what ones have you been involved with? So the ones I've mentioned, so in the UK, Street Bets is the charity that, that, that I work for. We, we look after homeless people's animals. On, in all sorts of cities in England. Uh, Spana, S-P-A-N-A, is the charity I work for in North Africa and other places. And then WVS, or Worldwide Veterinary Service, is who I've been volunteering with, uh, with, with street dogs and rabies vaccination projects. They've just reached a massive target. They, they work all over India and, and all over the world now, but um, with their rabies vaccination projects they've managed to managed to rid goa which is one huge state in india of rabies um and that's a massive step forward that's their aim for all over india but also africa and elsewhere it takes a hell of a lot of uh, rabies vaccines and work but slowly but surely uh, that's their aim is to have to to rid this world of rabies it's a big big killer 
If you get it, um, there's no cure. Right. Um, any other ones you want to mention? Uh, those are probably the main ones that I've I've talked about. Okay. Perfect. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure and an honour to have you here on the on the podcast with me. Well, thanks for having um, me, Warwick. I hope it's. Oh no. I'm not particularly eloquent, but uh, hopefully I've told you some stories you haven't heard before. Oh, most definitely. And, uh, yeah, like I said, you know, about five minutes ago, I think having you on the podcast, you've got some great stories. I love the stories. But just the, you know, the backstory behind the story about the, just the adventurous spirit that you have. I just think you're... Uh, Probably you're a bit of an inspiration, quite an inspiration to me, but I'm sure you're quite an inspiration to anybody who listens to this because it's not, it's not about, you know, it's not about going to 80 something countries or whatever. It's just about, you know, embracing opportunities that show up and, and yeah, just enjoying life, which, which you're like a, you're like a, a guru for that sort of thing. So thank you for all that you do. Thank you for all your volunteering. I didn't know about all that stuff, and that's that's pretty amazing. So thank you for all that stuff, and especially thank you for joining me on the podcast. It's It's been a blast catching up again, and hopefully we'll get to uh, catch up sometime soon. Yeah, hopefully when you come over to the UK again for one of your clinics. Well, thanks for having me. I mean, I was surprised but honoured uh, that you asked me. <laughs> I hope it's been interesting. Oh, um, it's if been I absolutely... can inspire one person, that would be amazing. Oh, I think you'll inspire more than one. So, thanks for coming on, Helen, and you guys at home. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Helen as much as I did. And we'll catch you guys on the next episode of the Journey on Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Journey on Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick has over 650 full-length training videos on his online video library at videos.warwickschiller.com. Be sure to follow Warwick on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram to see his latest training advice and insights.